Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to the Creationarium, where we deep dive into the aquarium of human creativity and ingenuity. I'm your host, Aaron, from the Thrush and Treasure Podcast, and in our 49th episode with the Queen, Caroline O'Connor, I lightly touched upon a story from the Australian film industry, and so I've spun that off into a new show, as you do, where we'll expose the hidden figures and stories where people have banded together to create something magical. And so in this first season, we're going to flesh out the little known story of how the Power Rangers accidentally saved the Australian film industry. And joining me for this cinematic adventure is one of the mighty movie Power Rangers himself. He's a sound technician who was one of the many inexperienced crew members thrown into the deep end to create Australia's first big budget CGI laden film. But it was their individual expertise that exercised and exorcised that aforementioned inexperience when the Aussie can-do attitude took over. But I don't want to spoil the good bits, so here to tell us what really went down when Fox dropped the Power Rangers off in Sydney is Mr. Paul Matthews. How are you going? Welcome to the Creationarium. Hello, how are you? I'm uh, I'm otherwise known as Zordmaker out there in the, uh, the creation land. Uh, some people might know me by that name because yep. the job that I had on Power Rangers was particularly with regards to building these big monstrous machines that star in the film called Zords. And so we built mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff associated. I was uh, on the art department with uh, guy, a little guy you might know called Colin Gibson. Uh, Colin uh, went on to produce a lot of films and of course his most recent uh, Oscar was for uh, Mad Max Fury Road as the production designer in Mad Max so uh, I I often think back to those days because uh, even back then we were talking about Mad Max even back then (laughs) and and how that was always going to happen but anyway we get to that story a bit later. Yeah. Just in terms of building the Zord, how many cardboard boxes did you go through? Oh, we didn't use any cardboard. You didn't? What? But I'll tell you what, we went through a hell of a lot of plywood. Yeah. (laughs) And a lot of 4B2s and a lot of of MDF board. That's what we went through. And we went through a hell of a lot of uh, lights and little lamps. It's it's sort of a, uh, it's like model building, but full scale model building. Yeah. And and, yeah, anyway, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Yes, we will. We'll talk about how it happened first. Yes. Super Sentai, as it's more commonly known in Japan. Himitsu Sentai Gorenja is the original series that was started, what, 40, 50 years ago, actually. By now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 75. I think it was an era when uh, colour television was just coming in mm-hmm. to, uh, to activity. And, uh, and I think the producers back in Japan wanted to have... A, uh, a nice picture show for the kids, which wasn't necessarily a, uh, a cartoon. Yep. So uh, so they invented this thing and it's sort of the idea was just to have different coloured superheroes. And uh, of course, uh, that's how the whole spandex thing came about. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, they didn't have the same hangups about uh, themselves that we do here in the West. And so it just spiraled into something from there. Yep. No, it, and then it was obviously on for 18 years before it hit uh, the Western world. It had been shown in America and Hawaii in 75, like the original series, but I think the American series came about in 93, was it? Uh, well, yeah, it sort of started early 93. Uh, Haim Saban, the, uh, the producer who originally mm-hmm. created the TV show, was trying to shop the idea in for a number of years before that. 
So there was actually a, uh, a pilot made for Power Rangers, which a lot of people haven't seen, which never actually aired in Australia. It was, of course, the pilot show, which finally got them the green light to go ahead. It was a, it was a non-union show, so <laughs> certainly done on a budget. Yep. It was uh, a genius, really, because they would take this uh, footage from the Ranger show in Japan, uh, yep. which had already been filmed. And really, as far as the producers in Japan were concerned, it was money for dead jam. I mean, they'd already made it. They'd already... Uh, used all that footage so uh Heim Saban comes along and says look oh can you give me the rights to uh, air that in the US and uh, we'll build another show around it. and of course it was a completely different storyline to what the uh, the Japanese show was yep. uh, but it hit the screens in the US and became extremely popular and it was mm-hmm. so different I mean in my experience um, I can honestly say as a fan of the show uh, I think it's in my uh, my little writing there when I first got involved with it um I think I was literally just wandered into the lounge room one day. I think it was about 3.58 or something like that. And I just saw the last five seconds of episode five of the show on the TV, just as I turned it on. And I just straight away, I just, I just saw it and I thought, wow, that is something different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and just neither did I realize how different it was and how it would change my life. But yep. the very first time I saw the very first little bit of the show aired here in Australia, I knew that it was going to be something different and that this was a major issue. Um, so, yeah, Haim Saban brought it to us. Of course, it became an amazing success. And mm-hmm. uh, very soon after that, they wanted to capitalize on that uh and turn it into a film so uh that's how 20th century fox became involved yeah when the the series was on sort of say 1990 to the making of the film what was your sort of movements at that time what were you doing professionally i i uh at that stage of course i wasn't in the film industry at all i was uh still uh running around putting pa systems in schools mostly Mm -hmm. very early days of that i was sort of um what was i 25 years old there uh we just had a recession here in australia and i uh couldn't get a full-time job so i just got taken myself and put myself through all of the uh the TAFE right up to uh diploma stage come out with some pretty good electronics and electrical qualifications and i was ready to take on the world so i had a lot of knowledge Uh, i had spent many many years in the audio industry as well as stage lighting and so on and so forth electronics construction design i had a lot of tools at my uh disposal when this came along and uh when power rangers first came along of course i watched it the following day after i picked it up instantly fell in love with it let the vcr record it uh for a while there in 1993 or was it 94 might have been 1994 by then uh and so i so much wanted to become part of it uh and of course the way i ended up being part of it was quite a crazy idea but still that's the funny thing is that what was i eight nine years old when it started, I wanted to be a part of it too, but purely for the awesome costumes of those monsters. Um, like I've just been watching the first two episodes on Stan, a streaming service in Australia for our international listeners slash listener probably. Um, and it just reminded me how much I, as a kid, they I absolutely loved them, which is funny because as an adult, I will avoid the masked singer at all costs because it's just cheap reality tv show uh, but i look at those wacky villain costumes I, I wanted to be a part of it so badly i really did just to to be in one of those costumes which i was too young i, yeah, I, I think i think one of the reasons why i really love the show was because i i have a bit of a 
a uh, condition called, I don't know whether anyone's heard of it, called face blindness or prosopagnosia. Okay, yeah. Where it's difficult for me to identify faces. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that rolls on into the sort of television I like to watch or films yep. I like to watch, anything which has a whole heap of people in it and it's difficult to tell who's who, I don't, I get bored with. But yep. here comes a show where everyone's dressed in the right colour. I don't have to yep. recognise the face. I know who the no. Red Ranger is. They're red. I know who the Blue Ranger is. They're blue. So it, yep. it instantly fell in fell in love with it, understood everything, understood all the little nuances, which I think a lot of people just saw it as a kid's show at the time. Yeah. But uh, the original actors that were on the show, plus a number of the people who produced it, particularly a guy called Scott Page, uh, who I had a bit to do with later on in the years, they really breathed a sort of adult respect in underneath the the children's show, sort of leaving enough gaps so that your your imagination could fill in all those gaps. Uh, and, and it actually became a really powerful tool that a lot of kids would have used to uh to create their own scenarios which is exactly what the, the users wanted because they wanted the kids to go out and buy the toys and goodness knows what and and, and create their own scenarios so it really was a perfect storm <laughs> you mentioned the toys i still have one of the rings that <laughs> were from i think 1994 95 i got this i got the yellow ring i, I just realized i don't have the camera otherwise i could show <laughs> oh wow so obviously i'm wearing a um a t-shirt yeah the of the blue ranger but that i brought recently the ring i have had for years yeah i, I uh there's all pictures of me of course i've got a blue ranger costume as yeah. well uh, i picked that up in the early noughties that was actually made for me by a mm-hmm. guy in japan <laughs> oh wow now when you mention uh the the colors that's a good lesson for anyone out there who is doing costume design pick signature colors for your characters yeah, well, they followed the rules and they work for them. So create a show that people want to watch. It's no use creating something that people don't want to watch because you're not going to get it aired. Yeah, hearing that, listeners, you'll notice in films that a lot of costume designers do it. And there's also a theme. Every character will have an individual theme or something like the Defenders TV show where all these characters from the four different TV shows came together. The lighting in each of their scenes of their individual scenes was to do with their character. So Daredevil's lighting, I think, was a lot of reds uh, and Jessica Jones was purple or something. I can't remember exactly what the um, the setup was. So Done quite a few shows since Power Rangers where we did things like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. so visual cues help tell the story of your character. And, and then when it comes to children, obviously... Especially on television, because on television, 50% of your audience, the TV is blaring in the background, Mm -hmm. Uh, every second or third word's not even being picked up. So you need to kind of be able to tell the story either by someone just watching the picture or just listening to the sound. So the sound design on these shows, particularly Power Rangers, was equally as powerful. Um, And a number of people who worked on that really did come out very well with that sound design scott page was one of the guys who'd worked on that so uh yeah awesome and obviously a lot of the um in the tv series a lot of the footage and special effects was recycled from the super sentai series however for the movie which fox i i don't know personally why they decided to film in Australia, they were in the middle of doing the TV series at the time. It's like they just ripped oh, them out of 
that studio in you, you know yeah yeah that's easy because um well initially it was going to be filmed in canada okay anyway uh they could only gain access to the to the actors when they weren't on the tv show which of course was in the american winter time was the primary reason why they started to think about heading offshore uh-huh. everyone would probably know john landau uh john landau has risen to fame through production of things like uh avatar and all those sorts of films being produced through fox uh, but this is before all that happened. <laughs> he was just another Fox executive in the US at the time. Uh, but he did know someone in here in Sydney called Colin Gibson. And though he knew what Colin was capable of doing. And he, he at the time, he was really running around the US, around the studios, particularly at Fox, and, and selling the idea of, uh, of producing films in Australia down 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 underneath mm-hmm. and uh and you know he just picked up on this and said look this is the perfect project this is uh you know we've we got guys we can do this you know uh they we can do it in the middle of winter which means we can gain access to the the principal cast without having to disturb the tv show and at that time uh they'd also set up some sort of a script so they were sort of looking at well we want angel grove to be somewhere which is like big and wonderful and huge but not recognizable as an american city yep. so so all these these things were pointing to it and of course John Landau really sold that idea to the executives and they basically turned around and said, well, if you, make, if you can make it work, then you can have it, but we need it done right away. What happened was they were going to shoot it in the, up in uh, Queensland because Queensland at the time was the only place that had studios. They had the Warner Brothers Movie World Studios up there. Yep. Uh, Sydney still had the showground, which wasn't the Fox Studios back then. It was still the showground. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one had even thought about turning into a studios at that stage. But Colin Gibson... Uh, had used the Stown stages at at uh, the showground for filming other films, and his attitude was, look, if we can gain access to these these big pavilions, we can make Power Rangers, and uh, I'm sure we can do it. And of course, John John Landau knew Colin Gibson well enough to know that if Colin said he can do something, he can do it. And uh, he yep. he uh, he turned around and gave it the green light. And uh, within a matter, the, the speed at which the project came up in Sydney was astounding. Literally went from nothing to like hundreds of people working on the project within weeks. Um, it's just an amazingly speed at which Colin Gibson got these people together. And they were all, everyone was like freelance. There was no one on staff. Uh, it was just a case of going to, um, to agents like, well, there was two in Sydney at the time. There was top technicians and there was tabs, tech, technology, technicians and booking service or something like that. There was two uh, major film booking agencies in Sydney at the time, those two. He just basically rang them up and said, look, we're making a film. We need all these people now. And they just they just made it happen in an incredible amount of time. Uh, Colin already knew a whole heap of people he could bring in, of course, because he worked on things like... Uh, yeah. uh, he'd, he'd worked on a number of big films in Australia. Of course, he did Babe, mm-hmm. which was just before that. So... Yep. So he was very much an up-and-coming art director at the time, and uh, and he, he got the trust of John, and the whole thing just came in around that. So that's why it happened in Sydney. Yep. Oh, there you go. Because nowadays it's tax incentives, so it's money. Oh, look, they, they would have had something to do with it, no doubt. They did, yeah. they did claim all the tax incentives. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sure John would have made sure that happened. <laughs> just on that tax incentive, something's getting my goat lately, that there was meant to be a rule that a certain amount of your cast members were meant to be Australian 
And I think that's just gone out the window now and that's frustrating me. But anyways, that's a rant for my other podcast where I actually rant about things like that. That's always been an issue, mate. It was an issue back then as yep. well as now. So it hasn't changed. Of course, they bought out the principal cast. They also bought out a whole heap of stunt formers under uh, Jeff Pruitt, mm-hmm. uh, who was the uh, stunt coordinator of the TV show at the time. Yep. He's actually got quite a lot of stuff out there on the internet. If you want to have a look at Jeff's uh, material, that's quite uh, quite good. But uh, they also had an equivalent number of Australian actors who mirrored those, and they were used quite extensively, not just lighting stand-ins, but, but they were actually used quite a, few, a bit on the Zords and so on and so forth as well. So, Did I say before that, obviously, for the movie, um, you weren't able to, or they, Fox wasn't able to just recycle footage from the TV show or from the, the Japanese TV shows, that everything had to be created that was never intended to be done. Um, yep. That would, It was always going to be a 100% uh, production from scratch. Uh, and, of course, the, the, real, the real groundbreaking thing that was done was to make the decision to use CGI in the third act. Now, that back, of course, CGI in the third act is normal nowadays, even 20 years ago. But 30 years ago, we're talking before Toy Story. We're talking before yep. all these sorts of films had come out people weren't really willing to just stand back and trust it to that extent. And even now you watch the, you watch Power Rangers, the movie, and you have a look at that third act and you think, well, it's pretty basic. <laughs> of course, they ended up building a, uh, a model of the city. Uh, that model was built right at the very end of the production when they had no money left. It was built in LA and it, frankly, it looks shit. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah that's because they simply couldn't develop they couldn't generate enough of the cgi that they originally wanted to generate they realized that we all knew they couldn't do that colin knew they couldn't do that but they said yes we can but then of course at the last minute they realized well actually shit no we can't so we better hurry up and make up a model so we can do all these pickup shots on it the shots in sydney the city what we used to call the city street shots uh they were genuine they were all spaced out. They would take ages to frame up those shots. They'd put cones out on the street so they could measure exactly the distance between the cones and generate a 3D picture of what the camera was seeing in 2D so they could then place the uh, the CGI into that same environment. It just, oh God, it made those shots so slow. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was the groundbreaking thing in Power Rangers was actually the marrying of CGI and, and full life live footage, which was taken from an on location. Previously, before that, uh, to my knowledge, there had been no on location footage used to you know join CGI to. That was the first time that was done. No, because I think um, Jurassic Park, the uh, T-Rex scene was... Some of that was CGI, but that was in a studio. Yeah, I think that was all done so, in studios. This was yeah. the first example of uh, of live yep, location yep. shooting being intermixed with uh, with CGI. Possibly, yeah. So everything before that came either on a set that was specially built for the purpose, yep. or or as a uh, shot from us from the studio. Yep. Now, um, yes, uh, it's funny the juxtaposition with the Americans. They had the yes, we can, but they couldn't. Whereas you guys were all, as you say, freelancers, so you, no experience in in filmmaking, and you had to bring that can-do attitude to it, jumping into the unknown. Uh, as you say, you'd worked in school PAs before this. Everyone had that same attitude, depending on, you know, yeah. it didn't matter what um, division they worked in. 
there were three um, gaffers in Sydney and they each had a big truck worth of stuff. And this is probably the first production where they had to all look at each other and think, you know, we're not going to be able to make this film unless we put all our stuff together and, and work it together. So in the end, they all worked on it. Um, and that was just one example. Now, the art department, which, of course, was Colin Gibson's uh, rule, uh, that was another thing altogether. The scale at which these sets had to be built had never been seen in Australia before and certainly not the speed at which they were made. Um, and the Americans would come over, the production designer in particular would come over, they have a look, but they're not used to the idea that we can't just put our hands on something at short notice. Now, I can go back to my particular job, which was art department electrician. So everything where that you see in those shots, which involves, say, for example, the Zord cockpit, where you've got all those thousands of lights flashing and controls and so on, that's all put there by me. Turn around and say, oh, look, you know, I like the look of this button. We'll have 10,000 of those and we'll put them all over the place. And we have to turn around and say, well, hang on a minute, that we don't have 10,000 of those in the country. And the 2,000 that we do have are spread over a distributor of which has got a branch in Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. Mm -hmm. So we have to get all that. We have to get that here. So we can't build it by 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Yep. We have to, So that's just to illustrate you know, the sort of challenges that we had. He would walk around the production studio and see things. He would say, oh, that looks cool. And he, he'd sit there and do this drawing or these drawings of what he thought that the cockpit should look like and then give them to us. And then it'd be up to us to, to work out how we can try and make it real. And uh, we'd be pouring all over these catalogs. They'd be pulling my hair out every day, trying to work out what we're going to do to make these things come to life. And uh, I've always said in, in that industry at that time, you would go into these meetings with the producers and it would be all very positive you know, oh, we should do this. Oh, yeah, oh, actually, we can do that. Yeah, we should do this. And every time you, you turn around to them and say, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. And then after half an hour later, you walk out and you'd look at yourself and say, fuck, what have I just done? I mean, for God's sake, Paul, there's no chance in hell you can do what you just promised. You know, there's yep. absolutely none. All righty, on that cliffhanger, we're going to close up the creationarium for this week. Huge thanks to Paul Matthews for joining me. In this first season and for sharing his story with us and also a special thanks to former Melbourne indie rock outfit Walkin and Drew and the Boys for letting us use their song Fish Out of Water for our theme song so check the details below for links to their music they've got an EP available digital and physical We'll be back next time with the continuing story of how Fox Studios in Sydney came to be. Be sure to check out Thrush and Treasure on the Bloop Network. It's hosted by myself, and we have some of the industry's most amazing guests. In fact, in a couple of days' time, we have Mr. Bill Oakley, former showrunner of The Simpsons, as well as Futurama, The Regular Show, The Cleveland Show, and most recently, Close Enough. So look out for that episode. And to you at home, you take care, and we shall see you next time. Hooroo!